Hi and welcome everyone to the 89th episode of Serum Rocks. This is Marcus Erlansson and today's podcast will be about customer acquisition in the software industry. And with me today I have Timothy Spell from Open Water. Tim Spell is the CEO of Open Water. He's based in the Washington DC area and as a CEO he's incredibly passionate about about non-profit work and he has previously been at the consulting agency firm KPMG. Welcome Tim. Hi Marcus, thanks for having me. How are you doing today? Doing uh, all right in the middle of this quarantine in Washington DC, but surviving. Yeah, so how are you coping with this situation that we have here? Uh, you know, it's tough, but uh, I'm saving a lot of money by not going anywhere. I guess that's one silver. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I'm just trying to make sure that I stay active every day, work out. Uh, I have a little bit of a home gym, so make sure I get my squats and deadlifts in. So, you know, don't let the weight creep up too much. But uh, that and just pouring myself into it, which may or may not be healthy, but you know, <laughs> yeah. at least keeps my mind busy. Yeah. So as a CEO of Open Water, what is it that you do? Well... You know, my role has changed over the years. Um, you know, we, I started this actually when I graduated college back in 2006 um, with a business partner. Um, so in the beginning, you know, it was very hands-on, pretty much doing everything, uh, <clears throat> at least everything sales and marketing related. And, but recently, it's, it's more that uh, it seems like my, you know, we've grown to about 60 to 70 employees. And my job is to make sure we're heading in the right direction um, and that my team has the needs to be successful been fortunate enough to be able to step away from a lot of the day-to-day work um but you know someone needs to make sure we're going we're going the right way and with customers all the time what's your last memorable customer experience as a customer i was thinking about this one so actually i I was the first time i've really started i noticed different customer support (laughs) noticeable customer support was actually at the grocery store um, so this was a couple weeks ago, right at the height of the COVID, uh, crisis. And this is right when, at least in the U S I don't know how it's been over there in Sweden, but, uh, there was no food on the shelves or there was very little food on the shelves. Um, you know, you can tell there was a slight sense of panic <laughs> just in the air. Yeah. No one really knew what was happening. Um, but I'll tell you what, the, the food workers that were there, the people that were stocking the shelves, you know, typically they would go about their day this previous, you know, you don't really think much of what they're doing and they, you know, they kind of keep a, a low profile. Um, but during this, I saw a sense of urgency with them working that I've never seen before. Um, not only are they at risk just by being in the, in the public, but they, it almost, they had a bit of a pep to their step, you know, kind of a pride in what they do. And, you know, that kind of sense of urgency um, I definitely felt something there. And, you know, I, what I was thinking is it definitely ties into, you know, I think employees and really anyone in that matter of a business, there needs to be more than just making money, right? People have to feel like they're making a difference, that they're doing something, part of a mission. And there's no doubt that these grocery workers were feeling that if they weren't doing their job, like there's like social chaos that could occur very, very quickly. Um, so just kind of a large in term, you know, that's a really, really important thing. But I think any organization can kind of take away that are your employees engaged? They feel like they're making a difference. Um, and if you don't have that, I don't know if you're going to be able to retain employees for very long. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's very true and 
very important in in these days. So if we look at customer acquisitions, how do you work with that or how do you think about that? So in the software space, um, I think most companies usually start out by what they personally are good at or comfortable at. So I was, you know, previous life before I did open water, uh, I was kind of like an internet marketer. So, you know, I was able to create websites really easily, throw up a site, right. And get some Google ads or SEO traction. And that's really how we got early traction in some, you know, important keywords in our industry. Um, so if you're not good at that, right. Hire someone who it is because you have to be visible. I think everyone knows that at that point, you'd be, you'd be surprised how many companies are not good at people finding what they're, you know, an important keyword. So SEO, pay-per-click, that's definitely important. Um, and then we kind of had to, there wasn't a lot of search demand in our field, in our industry. So what we had to do was just go directly to the customer. So we really from, uh, you know, day two, in terms of selling our product, we had a culture of outbound sales. So um, at, at the time it was just initially just me. So I was proactively prospecting, you know, create a little prospect list, send emails, weren't really cold calling, but a lot of emails, um, setting up demos and, and that sort of thing. So we eventually were able to get a, a BDR team so that we have, you know, BDRs who are just setting appointments for sales reps who are just closing. If anyone's familiar with uh, Aaron Ross predictable revenue, uh, you know, same concept. How did this, did it work from them, from you reaching out to what you have today then? Has it changed over that time much? You know, we initially started selling, um, well, we initially built a, a system for organizations to be able to collect entries. So kind of like a Wufu or a Google Forms type thing. Only you would think once you collect them, now you, we have we build on something so that then uh, organizations could then review the application. So it's application and review. Um, so we initially were targeting awards, which is a very niche within that, that thing. And they have you know a workflow that's kind of very specific. So we just found all the people and just, right, the more people you can email that have that job title or, the, the, you know, that had that in the role, right, it, it turns into kind of a numbers game at that point. Um, so we're able to get, you know, 15 clients the first year, right, then it kind of add an employee, add a sales, full-time sales rep, get to 50 the next year, right, add another sales rep, get to 100. Um, you know, and that was just through direct efforts and SEO and, and pay-per-click. What we didn't realize is that we probably should have added in trade shows a little bit earlier. I think a lot of people ignore trade shows as a way to get leads. But if you can find one good industry event that has potential buyers in your industry, um, you have to go all in there. So it might be a little bit different now with conferences being on hold and, and all that stuff. But we didn't start going to two years ago. But, you know, the moment we went, we were able to increase our um deals closed by 20% just from trade shows. So you have to go where your buyers are. I think that's the bottom line. All right. So when you go to a trade show, you pay for that and you set up a booth and you have your corner where you have your staff there and ready to answer questions for everyone who passes by. Yeah, exactly. So we, we actually, there's a book, um, it's called trade show samurai. Um, and so with any kind of sales tactic, we like to have at least a strategy behind what we're doing. So we, we follow a sales methodology called Sandler. Uh, and that's how we train all of our sales side employees on our company. So 
that when we hire a new rep, it's predictable about what you know we know they're going to say and and, and all that. Uh, but the same thing with with the trade shows. So it's just a proactive way of um, of how to deal with people at, at trade shows. So we have for our main one, we have a big twenty by twenty booth, and we have people at all four corners of the booth. Right. And almost like Greenpeace type people, you see them like walking down the street, how they kind of like stop you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we do the same thing. <laughs> These membership uh, recruits, right? Yeah. So, I yeah. mean, we, we have our the same people that are sending out emails doing the, the business development at our company. We just send them to the conferences as well. Uh, so we don't have like a separate team doing this, although you, you probably could if you have enough. And so they just stop people. Hey, have you heard of open water? And most people say no. We're like, okay, well, um, could I tell you quickly about what they do, what we do, right? And, you know, we have like a one sheet printout that people can use, that, that they can see. And so, we, and then, you know, at the end of like, hey, do you, do you think it makes sense for us to have a conversation after this event about this? It's either a quick yes or no, get their information, right? A lot of these conferences have like barcode scanners so you can like scan their name badge, right? And then after after the conference, this is key, you actually have to follow up. Um, there's one thing of actually be able to get leads at a conference, um, but you actually, and this is why we have our, specialized people who go to these things because they got to be able to send the emails. They got to call these people, right? Figure out scheduling and all that to actually get these people to talk to people, talk to our sales reps, right? And then our sales reps can take it from there and give them the demos. You know, we have like a 90 month uh, sales cycle. So you know, it takes some time to close. How long did you say? Nine months or? 90 days. 90 days. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So about three months cycle from beginning to closing a, a sale then. Yeah. Yeah. That's a service that you sell, right? So it's not an on-premise installation. It's a service. It's a sort of a subscription that you sell yeah. to offer to your clients, right? Yeah. It's a SaaS-based product. So again, think of it like of a, of a Wufu on steroids. Uh, so, you know, monthly or annual billing. Uh, you know, we do have a services department because it takes some time to get these things implemented and set up and then training for all the people. But, you know, we're we're kind of a, a SaaS-based first company. And, I mean, from where I come from, from the dynamic space, that's really, that's, <laughs> I recognize that one because it's the exact same thing that's dynamics is sold by so that i can relate to since i think that's the common way to do it nowadays that you have a subscription you sell that and you sell it per seat or per installation and as long as you use it you have benefit from it then you pay for it if it doesn't bring you any value then just quit it yeah i mean i think uh, and adoption i think is key as well right so um, it's one thing to be able to sell a SaaS subscription, but you know, are are people actually going to be using it? Um, is is certainly a challenge that I know a lot of CRMs face. Uh, so, luckily, at least for us, we're selling to people who already have adoption, and this is only adding to the adoption of their CRM. So, um, and that's I know one of the things in terms of how we got started. We were, one of the reasons we got traction is not only are we selling directly to the people. But we kind of made it a policy, not really a policy, a strategy early on that for every single sale that we made, we were going to make sure we were going to integrate with whatever system that they were on. So in, in the association, nonprofit world, um, they're called AMSs, Association Management Systems. And these could be built on Salesforce. They could be built on Dynamics. 
they could be built on proprietary systems. And it's very splintered, divided world. So there's probably about 30 or 40 of these systems that are out there. Um, all, even, you know, some of these systems might have 50 clients. Some of them might have a couple hundred, right? The larger ones might have, you know, maybe 1,500, 2,000 clients running on them. So we're integrating with all these um, so that even if a customer leaves, goes to a different system, they still kind of keep us. We just change the integration. Um, so that's been a big, uh, and then the thing is, once you integrate with one of these systems, like where there's dynamics, like the chances, like once they've adopted it, they don't leave. So <laughs> it's great stickiness in that regard. And that's a great strategy then to sort of make yourself in the heart of what the customer does, because if they, if you do manage to sell it and you don't have any adoption, they will quit it pretty soon because then they don't bring value. But once you're in there and you're in their heart and soul of what they do, you bring value each and every day to your customer and they will keep using it and keep paying you for it, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the once you once you start using one, I mean, we've been using Salesforce now since 2011 we can't leave. It's our system of record. Like it would be so difficult for us to like rip that out. I mean, we have our billing integrating with it. So, you know, yeah, you just got to keep, keep adding on the, on the add-ons. Yeah. And of course it does bring you value, right? I mean, otherwise you would have changed a long time ago. Oh yeah. No. And Salesforce knows that. That's why they keep raising our prices. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. So, with with these times changing here then how how are you thinking about it now when there are no actual physical trade sh- shows to visit then yeah it was it was definitely a disappointing um that all these trade shows are probably going to be canceled the rest of this year or the ones that are are moving virtual so it's still a little bit unknown in terms of the sponsorship value um you know obviously we can't deploy our giant 20 by 20 booth and all that um, but it kind of just brings us back to our roots of doing outbound sales, uh, pay-per-click and SEO. Uh, now we're doing a little bit, we're doing a lot of webinars lately. Um, so, you know, I, we're, we're definitely going to get hurt a little bit on the new, new business acquisition on not being able to sit down with people, but it'd just be a little bit of a blip, I think. Um, but it, it's brought up this new opportunity with virtual conference software, which, we didn't have before. So um, a lot of clients were using us for a call for papers uh, for their, for their conferences. So speakers who'd want to submit information, right. They would use our system to, to do all that. Um, and then we would display like a session gallery or like, you know, a session list so that people could browse through and view the sessions they wanted to go to. Uh, well, it's not that hard. What people realize is we can just add in zoom links for each one of those sessions um, and so now people are using us as their virtual session software, which has been really interesting. So, you know, just the you know, same thing, just, you know, people can register through whatever event registration system they currently use. Right. And then when it comes time for the conference, a lot of these conferences that are working with might be like two or three or five day long conferences with like, you know, maybe multiple concurrent sessions or breakout sessions throughout the day. So, you know, it's, it's really jam packed. You got to kind of pick your track type thing. Well, each one of those rooms now just has a zoom link. Um, so they can go in, join, leave. Um, you know, you can have the, the upvoted Q and a, uh, polls and all that sort of thing. 
So we've had a couple um, early adopters be able to use it. One of them had about 1,500 attendees the other week. Um, pretty big success. And it, it seems like the consensus going forward is that these conferences, even when this COVID thing is over, there's going to be the need for a virtual option. So I think the response to the, the that totally virtual conference was very, very positive. And about 50% of the comments that were left in the survey were that they're going to want to have a virtual option later because a lot of the people, they had to lower the price down for this virtual only thing. A lot of the people couldn't afford to fly out to Las Vegas or whatever this conference was, pay for the airfare, pay for a hotel for five days, right? As long And in addition to the $1,000 registration fee, you know, this place just made the, the fee 150 bucks doing virtually and they got 75% of their attendees. And most of the people who had never gone to one before were going to this. So you're kind of tapping to a whole different demographic with these virtual things. Um, so I see that it's going to be interesting. Um, already, most people have either canceled or soon going to cancel the conferences for this year, either move virtual or decide to cancel. And then for even 2021, you know, people are still going to be concerned about going out. So I don't think these, I think the buzzword is going to be hybrid conferences um, or hybrid events is what you're going to see. Have you any considerations for that hallway track? That's sort of where you meet and talk to people you've never met before. Have you ever anything for that? So that's the big thing. So right now, like, I think it was pretty clear that the content delivery was success for the for these virtual events. Um, what the whole industry, and it, it's interesting to just see random people pop up in this in this kind of world, are still trying to figure out is how do you network virtually, right? So we're, we're, I think all the vendors are trying to figure that out. So, you know, we tried something like virtual coffee sessions, um, you know, and for this next one that we're helping a client run, uh, we're going to be trying, you know, at the end of the day, uh, like building game time <laughs> so you can join with random people and play Scrabble together, or, you know, it would be Jeopardy uh, theme type thing. Just this way for people to interact because yeah, what is missing is the coffee, the coffee break chatter or right after the session ends, you yeah. talk to the person who's sitting next to you. So we're trying, we're trying to build those things in, you know, but it, it is, you know, how do you completely, you can't completely get over the the in-person aspect of that. Um, but everyone's scrambling to see if they can find an answer. So I have one of my uh, my um, my customers who actually uh, arranged a sort of <laughs> blind date with a colleague. Mm. So you sign up for, for a lunch meeting and, and then you, you just have your normal i mean laptop in front of you and then you're you're joined with the with the colleague that's also signed up and you have no idea who's going to be on the other end and you sort of sit down yeah have your lunch talk to the other person and just don't know so that's that's right. also something so that's the thing i think a lot of people are going to be trying these things out like the, and a lot of their novel ideas whether or not people find long lasting value in these things is unknown. You know, we're probably, as soon, if a client, I mean, it's not hard for us to set something like that up for someone. So the next client that actually, we've heard that before as well. So the next client who asks for it, we'll, we'll implement it. Um, you know, and we'll see, we'll see what the, what the, what the results are. But I think there's going to be a lot of creative ideas coming out. 
And I I think all of these, I mean, virtual coffee in game time, it's like, yeah, well, we have a need for meeting other people and talk to them. And if this meets that criteria, then great, go for it. I mean, the virtual after work, well, yeah, well, let's try it. Yeah, exactly. Hey, look, I've been to more happy hours in the past three weeks than I have uh, the previous two months before that. <laughs> And everyone is sober because you're home. <laughs> yeah, a lot of virtual happy hours. Yeah, a lot of virtual happy hours have been popping up. Um, you know, just if our, and I mentioned Jeopardy because my own company had a little open water Jeopardy thing last Friday where uh, there's some pre-canned software you can put in, but it, you know, one of the categories was open water history, right? So you can make cool. your own like Jeopardy questions and things like that. So I, well, the conferences that we're going to be working with this next are going to try their own organization's theme Jeopardy or their industry-specific Jeopardy. Um, yeah. Yeah, just that's... random stuff for people to engage. But yeah, there's there's just a, a need for people to be able to interact. That's Jeopardy. That can be really fun as well. So yeah, yeah, good one. Yeah, I got one of my op- my own company's questions wrong. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's... I was like, but... oh, I'm going to know all these. <laughs> I got one of them wrong. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> Then everyone laughs at you, not with you. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. So how do you grow your customer base, sort of finding new types of customers or new customers? Yeah, then? I mean, this, you know, what's interesting is our, our the, the business that we started off with, right, for open water, this application and review industry. Um, you know, we made the Inc. 5000 and it took a while for us to do it. But like we clicked along and we were averaging like 35% of your growth up until, you know, we'll just say the start of this year. Not rocket ship growth. Like, it's not like we're Zoom, you know, or, or something like that, or Slack. Yeah. It's just, you know, an yeah. absolute rocket ship. But we had very predictable growth. But the more that I'm thinking about, I think I really, I read this one study with one of these venture capital firms that basically said your growth rate is, the really your company's success for that matter is limited to the size of your market. So I think we were a pretty well-run company. We have great engineering. We have great customer support. We have a great sales team. Um, and we just could not grow faster than 35% a year. That was just, that was it. Unless we wanted to go in the red, right? And just really over hire. I really think your market dictates how fast you can grow, assuming you're doing the basic things right. Yeah, and red numbers are implying the sort of losses to gain market shares. Yeah, Um so what's been interesting is we've had, we've offered webinars to clients in the past and when like we would fight to get like 10 or 15 clients, you know, or protect prospective clients on these things. We're having a virtual conference webinar this Friday that has over a thousand attendees. It's unbelievable the demand that's kind of out there, but it just goes to show you that it's a huge market. Um, there's a huge amount of demand um, and therefore the potential market could be like, you know, the size of your company could be bigger. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Hopefully we can, you know, a couple of people will wind up going with us, but, um, I think it really just goes back to, is your market big? Are you, do you have a large addressable market? Um, and right. How can you get in front of those people? That's really impressive. A thousand people to attend a webinar. I mean, we've never seen anything that like was... it. Yeah. That was really hard before because people didn't sort of show up and it was, ah, how long is it going to take? Do yeah, I, I think it just, it's it? like but, if your information's pressing, 
yeah. right? Then um, I think, you know, if you have good content and then people will come, but it has to be important. You can't just be another voice in, in, in a sea. So how do you attract people to these webinars? Do you think that it's sort of with the brand that you have or how do you think about that? Well, I mean, we have about 600 customers. So, you know, a couple hundred of them are our current customers. Um, but the rest, I mean, we've been prospecting now and building, and I do think it comes back to our brand to a degree, but we've been prospecting since 2011. We have a pretty large prospecting list in Salesforce. Um, so, you know, we just kind of sent out a mass email to those people and then it kind of, it kind of went from there. I, I think people started forwarding it to their colleagues, a certain degree, went viral to a degree. And then we did some very minor advertising, uh, in one of the industries that we're part of, um, but it really just comes back to, it was our own marketing list that we built over the years by consistently doing outbound efforts because we always had to email people. So I think, you know, it, Hopefully, it'll, it'll bear some fruits. So how do you think about building your brand nowadays then? Well, when we first started, we were called VOfficeWare, Virtual Office Software. Uh, that was our initial company name when we started. Um, and it was you know custom software development, that sort of thing. Um, when we rebranded, we rebranded, and it was... Uh, this was actually the the name the the question I got wrong in my Jeopardy was what year did we rebrand to Open Water? <laughs> and I was like 2015. It was actually 2014 when we rebranded to Open Water, and it took a lot um, to come up with that name. I was a rower in high school and college. I was a club rower um, in the DC area at a club called Potomac Boat Club, um, and so rowing was a big part of my life. Um, to some degree it still is, although I'm a little bit retired right now. Uh, so when we wanted to have a name, we wanted to think about, first off, we wanted the name to not say what we did, right? We didn't want to have, you know, awards software product, whatever, you know, or award it or something like that. So we wanted the name to be generic and we wanted to come up with a name that had a positive connotation. Now, me and my business partner had a lot of disagreements about this. Um, we hired a marketing company who was worthless in terms of coming up with a name, but at least to help this kind of brainstorm. Um, I, after several months, you know, I was like, open water is a term in rowing that measured the distance between two boats at a finish line. Um, so I was like, what about open water? My business partner was like, initially like, oh, I like that. Um, and then he was like, you know, I don't, I don't like it. And he, he wanted to come up with some name about, uh, it's like the, Kelvin 460 something. I don't know. It was like the, the boiling point of water in, uh, in Kelvin in, degrees. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, Oh, it's a scientific notion, but he wouldn't relent. He was like, listen, I don't like open water. I don't think it's a good name. He's like, but I'm data oriented. Why don't we send on a survey? Uh, and so I was like, all right, fine. So we sent out a survey to our friends and family. And then, um, you know, about 50% of our customers and the data came back overwhelmingly positive that people liked the open water name. And it was now for a fine, a, a small percentage of people uh, had a fear of sharks and thought they were going to drown. Uh, but the other 98% were like, Oh, it's calming. It's soothing. It's a winning vibe. Um, so when we picked that name, it kind of set the tone for what kind of company we wanted. Um, so we were able to attract while previously we were attracting, it, it, you attract a different demographic um, of employees. Um, 
and people just started attaching us to a winning winning theme and it kind of went from there. So in terms of promoting the brand now, um, you know, I think we have a good brand. I just think that more people, more eyeballs need to be on it. It's why we love the trade shows. Uh, you know, even if you're a startup, if you have a big 20 by 20 trade show booth at your industry conference, people think you're huge. <laughs> they don't know the difference. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, spending, you see what you see. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So spending yeah. that money might seem like a huge, huge cost, but I viewed it as I'm building a brand and people need to see the brand. So visually one in these trade shows. And then two is, um, you know, you get all those annoying emails, um, of people prospecting. Um, well they work. <laughs> so if, 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 if people aren't necessarily buying because of them right now, you're still building the brand, right? I think Salesforce during the 0708 crisis, um, the biggest regret they had was that they took their foot off the gas in terms of their sales and marketing efforts during the downturn. Yeah. Um, and so I've had the same view even before we, you know, we started getting traction with this virtual conference stuff. I was like, listen, we're not taking our feet off the gas here. Um, this is a marketing effort. This is a branding play. This is a marketing effort. Um, and then when, you know, people have money again, money to spend again, right. They need to, they need to remember us because, you know, this, the software industry as a whole, definitely, unless you're zoom, right. Everyone took a hit because of this. I don't think any, many industries were spared. No, I, I mean, during this Corona, I think more or less everyone has something and that's, that's always you have to take that into account. And I mean, employ unemployment rates are going up. Uh, I mean, global growth are going down. So that's that's a trend at least. And and I thought about open water associated to diving as well because divers they have this term. You're an open water diver. That's where you start. Um, so I mean, I like it. So yeah. Yeah, it's it's working for us. We're we're keeping it. We're not rebranding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that's always troublesome to rebrand because then everyone sort of oh you have to do that same thing over again. So hopefully not in the near term. No, no, I think this is it. So does it work as well for new employees and attracting uh, talented people? Yeah, when I was. Um... So when we were like, when we were first selling this product, you know, I was, I was the sales rep, right. And when we hired, um, sales reps, like I was the sales manager, right. And marketing manager. So I kind of took that role in the company. Um, so when, once we rebranded, um, you know, I was thinking, I'm like, well, right. I had the whole rower vibe, right. And anyone who's read the book, boys in the boat, right. The, the, the general theme, there, of course, there's exceptions to every, every group, but like for the most part, like if you made it through college rowing, at least you have your, some of your act together. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I was like, well, I want to hire rowers. I want to hire more rowers. Um, so I wound up advertising. Actually, I posted on the classifieds of this rowing website. It's like this niche little rowing website where only like rowing nerds visit. And everyone, it's typically used for like coaches, you know, rowing coaches who want to find their next job, right? This high school's hiring or this college is hiring, right? So it's like yeah. the classified section. Well, I was like, 
you know, I'm going to be a, you know, I was a software company that posted there. <laughs> and, um, you know, I wound up getting, a, you know, I would post on Indeed or something before that. And like, you know, I'm not getting much, wasn't getting very quality applicants. But I posted on here, I'm getting people who went to Dartmouth and Harvard um, and, you know, a lot of other great schools. Uh, and so I wound up picking up some really quality people in the company that, you know, I started as just in entry level sales and, you know, now there a lot of them are running different parts of the company. Um, one of the guys who went to GW while we were there, um, he's now running our entire marketing department, right? He's 20, 26 years old. Um, and we have another guy, you know, two of the rowers in our sales department are doing, or, you know, our top performers. And, and not to say that I think that got us to the initial hump of hiring good people. Um, and now, you know, we have people from a lot of diverse backgrounds, but I would still say most of the employees that work here came from some sort of competitive sports background. Um, I would say in terms of a, a men and women, um, I would say that's kind of something that kind of we all have in common. So do you have your own team now? No. <laughs> we had at one point, and I would call this the height of when I was, right, the, probably the peak of me, high, of this of running the sales department. Uh, before I kind of took a little bit more of a backseat, um, we had eight rowers uh, on the team. And so we were able to take out, one of the guys was a, was a coach in the DC area. So we were able to take a boat out of, um, you know, we rode up and down the Potomac together and it was actually a very good boat. <laughs> it was a very good row. Um, but unfortunately, you know, it, it didn't work out for, for everyone. Um, and that was one of the problems of we had, amazing people, but our market wasn't big enough, right? So we couldn't keep all the great people. Um, kind of getting to the point, you're only as big as your market can support. So right, we had a good team at one point. So are you, have, have, do you have multiple offices or are everyone in the DC area? For the most part, our company's remote. So our development's remote. Um, our entire support department, um, with the exception of a few people, are remote. But even now, they're remote. Um, the only people that actually were in our office, and we're in Arlington, Virginia, which is right outside D.C., uh, was our sales and marketing staff. Uh, but now they're remote. We were a little bit worried about our BDRs, our you know, kind of our entry-level employees, um, you know, who are like 21, 22 years old. We're a little bit nervous about not providing enough direction for them remotely, but it's been working great. So I think any limiting beliefs that we had about being a remote totally remote company are, are vanished at this point yeah because sometimes you want to spread out over different time zones uh, i mean usa is perhaps not the biggest i mean you have four time zones there so if you just get in early and stay late perhaps you can support all of them during business hours uh, but if you want to yeah. expand to other parts of the world, then you have to have more areas, right? Yeah, which we're starting now. I mean, we have clients and one um, employee at this point in the UK. Um, but now we're starting to get more and more clients in Australia and supporting them has been challenging. So, you know, we're, we're kind of going west. <laughs> so our support's just getting more and more extended on our West Coast support hours. U.S. West Coast, West Coast, but yeah. I see us having to add full-time support to Australia in the very near future. Although we are using Australia as a way to use um, partners for the first time ever. So, how do you think about partners then? We, uh, in terms of partners, we always just 
assumed that partnerships didn't work. <laughs> so we just kind of kept our heads down here and did our own thing. Uh, we used integrations as a way to kind of like build bridges in a way. Um, now we're, we're learning a little bit more about the partner world. Our opinion on that is changing a bit, um, but we're still starting to dip our toes in. Um, so one of the uh, software systems in the association world got built entirely based on partners. So they have like 80 different resellers and implementation partners that they've been working with. And so luckily they're kind of bringing us into their fold. Um, they're getting a little bit of a piece of the pie, but we're able to leverage their entire partner network around the world. And so actually, as we speak right now, we're holding our first partner training where we have um, 20 partners uh, that we're training virtually right now on our software, uh, training them first on how to use the software, uh, learning the ins and outs of all the different use cases. Uh, and then uh, part of tomorrow's session will be on how to effectively sell the software. So we'll essentially be shifting a part of our team to support support, <laughs> right? So instead of supporting our own employees, we're now going to be supporting other people's employees. Uh, so we'll be level two support in a way. And then sales support. So they're going to be out prospecting, uh, talking to their existing client bases, and they're going to need to rope us in on demos or they're going to need sales collateral. In the case of these Australian partners, um, you know, we don't have the bandwidth at this point to be on all their calls where we could in the U.S. and Canada. So we're using them as definitely a way to um, maybe stop micromanaging our sales and marketing as much and really empowering these partners. Um, to be able to run and sell the product on their own. Uh, so it's an exciting time. Um, you know, the company that we're working with that's letting us, you know, leverage their partner network is just said to be patient, right? They're like, they says it typically takes about a year or even more to really start seeing results. So we're re really viewing it as a long-term play on how to get our product out there, especially overseas. But um, bottom line is that we're getting overwhelmed like we need, instead of scaling up and having a huge support and implementation department at our company, we're kind of looking to scale out uh, to be able to leverage partners, to be able to onboard and implement everything. So that, does that mean that your business model has shifted and changed in these, these scenarios as well? I would say it is shifting. Yeah. Um, we're going to be shifting more towards relying uh, you know, we'll just be the software company that pumps out great software and what we're going to provide great support, obviously to our current customers, but really shifting to providing great support to partners is is a model that we're kind of making a long-term bet on. All right. So you sell the software and all the consulting goes to the partner then. It's sort of that the base strategy there. <clears throat> exactly. And they get, you know, I, I think these partners are getting a cut. These partners are definitely getting a cut of the, the license fees. Um, but the bottom line is it takes it does take us some you know decent amount of effort and hours uh, to get these things these workflows configured and for the virtual conferences we're not ready to let the partners run with that yet because we have to you know we've done about five of them we want to do it at least another twenty before we really have a process well defined for these things um, but for them they need live support right they need um, these clients are needing someone to moderate the sessions so that um, you know, they can pass the presenter role to other people or, or things like that um, and having virtual kind of concierge desk. So it's just a lot of services, a lot of implementation, a lot of labor. 
Um, and we'll do it. We're happy to do it for now, but it's, um, we'd rather be a strict software company. Yeah. And I mean, there are more things for you to do, right? So, I mean, your to-do list is as yeah. everyone else, you'd never, ever get to the bottom of it. Yeah. Especially when now if they were introducing the second product line, it's like, uh, yeah, the features aren't going away. We'll put it, we'll leave it at that. I I don't know anyone who's ever got to the bottom of their to-do list, so that's no. just a given, right? If yeah. if you ever do that, then well, take a day off; it will come back to you. Yeah. <laughs> or or you're out of business. That's why. Right. Yeah. Hopefully not that. Hopefully not that. Um. All right. So, what kind of challenges have you faced in in building your software and building your business? I think the biggest challenges have just been the fact that we were bootstrapped. Um, so, you know, there's just never enough uh, resources or, you know, staff to go around. Um, really no margin for error. Error, You know, hiring the first couple good sales reps and getting a process around that is something looking back that not many companies can kind of figure out. So I'm fortunate we're able to do that. Um, and then retaining those good sales reps, right? At one point, we had a really good one leave, um, you know, who we trained for years, worked with for years. So, you know, that was definitely a hit. Um, the good news is that, you know, I, we all knew he was good. I knew he was good. He knew he was good. <laughs> and luckily, uh, you know, it what he was sold to at the new company wasn't exactly the reality. So um, luckily, we were, he was able to come back. Um, but retaining and keeping good talent is, I think, certainly a challenge that most companies face. Um, and the small market, which I've mentioned, um, you know, 10,000 associations have the money to afford our software. Um, so, you know, university, you know, we could have expanded quickly, but you want to, you know, you want to master a niche before you, you go out to different markets. Yeah. So have you ever come to someone that sort of, out of your industry and want to try it and you said no or hesitated because you're not sure about the industry itself um i don't know if we necessarily i mean during the sales process we kind of we try to uncover their needs right and really get an understanding of what they're doing now and to see if our softwares can be morphed right into doing their exact workflow or if there have to be changes to the workflow, making sure they're minimal. So we've had success with other markets, universities, um, uh, the advertising, uh, the media, called the media conglomerates, these media con companies. We've had some work in, in the enterprise. Um, but the bottom line, if, if their workflow is just too off of what we do, we have to turn them down. Even though they might trust the fact that we can solve the problem, uh, if we don't feel confident we can deliver on that, um, you know, we, we've had circumstances where we've, we have bit off, luckily not more than we can chew, but certainly close. Um, so since we are great at developing software, like if we understand someone's requirements, like we can build it. Um, but if it's just too much custom, right. And not enough out of the box, it's that again, that's not a direction we want to go in as a business. And so educating our sales reps who are hungry to close business, kind of working, you know, kind of reeling them in. Um, in, in that case, we have, have had to turn down deals and, and then played the politics as well of, you know, telling them why this is not in the good best interest for us to close this deal. Um, you know, we can't 
you know, in the cases that we have done that in the past, it's just taken all of our top stat, all our top talent on the the delivery and engineering side, and 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 it's like quarantined them off for like six months so they can just work on this one specific client, right? As opposed to building our software in a way that's sustainable for everyone. So it, it's definitely trade-offs in that regard. Do you feel that we have missed anything important here? No, I think that was that was pretty meaty. If I want to know more, where where can I find it? Uh, you can go to our website, which is getopenwater.com. And uh, browse around. Uh, the platform page is pretty self-explanatory. And uh, there's a webinar coming up uh, soon about our virtual conference. So make sure not to miss that. Do you have any public speaking where we can see you next? Well, I was supposed to be speaking at conferences, and those are canceled. So uh, my speaking engagements are on pause for yeah. the time being. All right, then. Who would you recommend as a future guest on this podcast? Does it have to be in the CRM space? Generally, yes. Well, well, it could be in the business space as well, because, I mean, customers is the core to customer relationships. So... Anyone who is good with working with customers, involving their business. That's I have interesting. A, I have a friend from college who um, is a partner at Ad Results Media. Um, so it's, they're really big in the podcasting industry. Uh, so they do podcasting, advertising, and sales. They're kind of like middlemen in that world. Um, he's yeah, had sure. some interesting perspectives of what's going on in the world. Yeah, that can be interesting. All right, then. Uh, do you have any links to to anything else? I will probably add a link to the trade show Samurai. But uh, do you have anything else that you would like to add? Um, anything that I missed to ask you? Anything like that? No, I think just a link to um, our website and then maybe a link to my LinkedIn profile. Yeah, some self-promotion as well. Yeah, I think the LinkedIn profile would be sufficient. All right. Thank you for participation in CRM Rocks, uh, Timothy Spell. Great. Thank you very much. And thanks to you listening. And don't forget that you can comment on CRMRocks.com. And if you want to listen to it, just search for CRM Rocks in your favorite podcast player and you'll find it right there. See you next time on CRM Rocks. <laughs>